Thank you all again for being here. We're going to start today with uh, the book of James. Now, uh, James is an interesting book in your Bible, and uh, I'm going to talk to you about it in a, in a moment. But first of all, I want, to, uh, I want to read the passage. Let's read the first few verses of James uh, chapter 1. We're going to start with uh, verse 1 and read down to 18. It's in your bulletin, or if you have your scriptures with you, you can read it. Now hear the word of God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not, that person must not believe that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say that when he is tempted, he is tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. This is God's word. I trust that you all know the Grimm's fairy tales. I just finished reading them. It's free on iBooks and I think Kindle also. You can get all the original Grimm's fairy tale. Very interesting. They're much more gruesome than Disney portrays them. But uh, uh, I read this one this week and it, it, it reminded me of something. And it, it's the one that you're familiar with about Rumpelstiltskin. You know, there's this miller, the guy that grinds the grain, and he had a daughter, a beautiful daughter, and he tells the king that the daughter can spin on a spinning wheel, she can spin straw into gold. So the king latches onto that, he puts her in a tower, gives her a spinning wheel, and fills the room with straw, and says, get to work, and if you you don't, uh, you're going to lose your life, you've got to spin this straw into gold, and of course she can't do it, her father's made up something and so she's weeping and in comes into the room this little man in fact in I think in German it says mannequin Uh, it's it's a child man a little man and the little man he's like a gnome or something and he comes in and he says "Uh, what are you crying for well I got a 
spin this straw. Well, if you give me something, I will spin the straw into gold because I'm magic. And so she gives him her necklace or a ring or something. I don't know. And, and, and she, he does it. So next morning, pile of gold. And the king is beside himself. He brings in more straw, fills the room up with more straw. And of course, that night, she's weeping again. The little guy comes in and this time he gives her something else. She gives him something else. And until she finally, after night after night, she runs out of stuff to give him. She has no more stuff. And he tells her, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. Promise me that when you become queen, because the king's got to go for this. He's going to take you as his wife. When you become queen, I want your firstborn child. And she's desperate. So she says, okay, you can have my firstborn child. And of course, you know, he spins the gold. The king makes her his wife. And a year later, she has a little baby boy. And in shows the little guy, the mannequin. He comes in and he says, I want the child. But he's a beautiful child. She loves her child. She's not going to give him a child. So she starts crying. And he says, okay, I'll make you a deal. If you can guess my name, then... The, the curse is off and I won't take your child. But you're never going to guess my name. And so I'll be back tomorrow night. You have to know my name or I'm taking the child. So the next night, he comes in and of course, she, you know, Bob, Harry, Phil, whatever. And no, no, no. And uh, he's, give me the child. No, she cries, she weeps. Okay, I'll give you another night, another night. So after a few nights of this goes by, the queen sends out spies into the land, see if she can discover the name. But... No luck finding the name. And she knows tomorrow night he's coming back. And one of her servants came in and says, I was in the forest and I heard a little man in a cottage dancing around singing a song. And of course, it's in the book, the song. And I won't, I won't do that to you. <laughs> Sunday morning, I mean, to do something that unholy, it would be awful. But anyway, the, 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 guy, the little guy reveals his name. And the servant tells the girl, and of course, she guesses, his name and his name is what Rumpelstiltskin of course that's in the so she's free well the reason I tell you this story is because Martin Luther the great reformer famously called the book of James an epistle of straw he hated the book of James he despised it he didn't think it belonged in the Bible he wrote things about it he said bad things about it and he wanted it removed from the Bible because the book of James seemed to be too much about good works and doing things. And he defines faith differently. And there's all this stuff in James. There's not too much, only two verses in the whole book of James that talk about Jesus. And so Luther, battling with the Roman, the ancient Roman church and dealing with this medieval church and its and its stressing of works and all, he just could not get over it. And so he didn't like the uh, book of James. But uh, the reformers all, you know, outvoted him and kept the book of James in the corpus. Thank goodness. Because I believe that if we learn the name, if we discover the name of the book of James, what it is, really, if we really discover what book it is and discover its name, we can spin this book into gold. The straw that's there into gold. And I'm not going to say that there's not controversy about the book of James. There is. But I'm going to take a, a specific approach that I hope you will appreciate. I did the same thing with the book of Revelation. We're going to do that with the book of James. And uh, I hope that you 
that you get something really meaningful out of it. So this is sort of an introduction, and I will remind you of these things as we go on through the, through the book. It's probably going to take us about three months to get through the book. Most people either love or hate the book of James. Some people love it because it's got lots of rules and lots of imperatives. There's 59 commands in 108 verses. So more than half of the book of James are commands, imperatives. And uh, that's very unusual. Uh, There's no other New Testament book quite like this. And people, some people love James because, ah, finally, I'm getting, he's going to tell me what to do and I'm going to go do it and I'm going to be justified by my faith and uh, by my works. And so people love the book of James. And And it has become a point of contention for many people, particularly between the, the medieval Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Church, which I was raised in, and, and Protestantism, or at least Orthodox Protestantism. Because in Orthodox Protestantism, we're saved by faith. In the book of James, he says very clearly, faith cannot save you, you're saved by works. And of course, each side... You know, we, we, we gather around uh, the altar of uh, the Apostle Paul and the book of Romans and other brothers and sisters in, in the Christian world gather around the altar of James. And, and here we go. Well, I know his name. It's Rumpelstiltskin. And we're going to spin that thing into gold. And you're going to see there is no contradiction because we're going to try, and I'm going to do my very best, to help you read the book of James on its own terms. Just like we did with the book of Revelation. Not letting some 20th or 21st century theologian define it for us, nor let the Apostle Paul himself define James for us. We're not going to do that. We're going to read it on its own terms. And I think when you see it, and you know the name, what it really is, it's going to be absolutely wonderful. It's going to turn it into gold for you. So uh, let me give you some, uh, very quickly, some premises that we're going to assume. Now, all of these have objections, but if you have an objection or you read an objection in a commentary or you hear somebody make an objection, uh, come to me and I'll help you work through it. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you these assumptions that we're going to work off of because it would take forever to explain every one of them and why. First of all, the author. The author is, we believe, and it's in most of you, if you have a study Bible, all of this comes out of the front of your study Bible. This is not because I'm brilliant. Although, I, you can... <laughs> I, look... This stuff, is, this stuff is available. The best scholars are, are behind what I'm going to tell you, but there are objections. First of all, James, the author, is, we believe, the half-brother of Jesus. He was the eldest brother after Jesus, but he was the son of Joseph and Mary, or perhaps the son of Joseph and a previous marriage. We don't really know. History doesn't tell us, and uh, the church is divided over that. God help us. But nevertheless... He is the half-brother of Jesus. The book, we are going to take the approach that the book was written very early because most recent scholarship dates it as early possibly as 44 AD. It was written before any of Paul's epistles or Peter or John, Revelation, probably even before the Gospels were written. So if that's true, and 
scholars are divided, but the really good ones, the ones that I, because I only use the good ones, the really good ones say it was probably written very early following the Jewish diaspora that you read about in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8. So that's the approach we're going to take. And if you have a problem with it, come see me. I'll be happy to explain to you why. The purpose of this book is to repeat and restate much of the teaching of Jesus. In fact, in some of my commentaries, you can look at these amazing charts that have the words of James right next to the words of Jesus and those words right next to an Old Testament scripture because Jesus was constantly quoting the Old Testament and many of them were Proverbs that Jesus used. And so you're seeing that James is linking the New Testament to the Old Testament corpus. He's saying, look at this body of literature that our Lord was teaching us, exhorting us to do and follow because we believe in him. Therefore, we're going to, I'm going to restate them, and I'm going to restate them to people who have now been scattered. Verse 1, they've been scattered all over Asia Minor. Some went to the west, but the ones he's addressing were probably mostly in the east. And, and these people were uh, suffering under persecution, as they always have been, and having to deal with a lot of trials and troubles and other things. And he's giving them the teachings of Jesus. He's restating them. Remember, remember, remember. Okay. So this book, like Revelation, is I'm going to take the approach that we should look at James that it is utterly unique. It is not like Paul's epistles. It should not be compared to the Pauline epistles. It should not be compared to the Gospels. It shouldn't be compared to the book of Revelation. Revelation is a completely unique genre. And I'm going to argue, following Richard Bauckham and other scholars, that the book of James is also singularly unique. There's nothing like it in the New Testament, although there is a lot like it in the Old Testament, in the Jewish Apocrypha, in the letters and teachings of Ben Sirah, and some other Jewish uh, rabbinic literature. Very, very common. Everybody would have known about it at this time. It wouldn't have been something strange. Strange to us because we're so used, especially in our Presbyterian and Reformed circles, we absolutely do homage at the altar of the Apostle Paul. That's our guy, our patron saint, if you will. And, and that's good, nothing wrong with that. But to put the two together and, and try to judge Paul in view of, of James or James in view of Paul is to do an injustice to both men. So we'll talk through that. It is utterly unique in the New Testament. There is a deep affinity, listen, to the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, and other Hebrew literature. Richard Bauckham, in his commentary, which is excellent, but very technical. It's, it's not easy reading, but I'll suffer for you, and uh, I'll read it and help you understand it. But you can get it, and it's excellent. He calls the book of James an encyclical, listen to this, this is why you've got to avoid these things at all costs, an encyclical paranesis of loosely associated aphorisms. Okay, you're all dismissed. <laughs> Go live with that. Encyclical paranesis of loosely associated aphorisms. Now, I'll explain all that. Paranesis are, are instructions in moral living, like Proverbs. 
Aphorisms are, are short little pithy sayings that communicate something quick and fast, and they're loosely associated. You don't find theme running through. People have tried to wrench themes out of the book of James, and it just doesn't work. So I'll explain why we're not going to do that. It's not like the other apostolic epistles. Placing James next to Paul wrenches both out of their context and puts you in a position where you're not really getting what James is getting at, what his purpose is. James is not talking particularly about faith when we come to the chapter where he talks about faith and, and it seems like he's correcting the Apostle Paul. James is not talking about faith as those coming to Jesus needing to be justified, but he's, he's, he's talking about faith as something that a believer or a Jewish believer would already have and is now needing to work out in their life to show their faith. It's already there. Whereas the Apostle Paul was dealing with a whole different group of people, many of them Gentiles. And Paul was telling him, here's how you get into the church. Here's how you become unified with Christ and get into union with Christ through faith, by faith, through grace, plus nothing. But James is assuming that already, that you're already there. Now, how do you live your faith so that it is active? And responsible. So people can see the salt and light in your life. Which is really, for a lot of us, it's where the rubber meets the road. It's what we struggle with the most. And so this book is just absolutely wonderful. So I'm going to ask three questions. And then it's going to be very brief this morning. This is just an intro. Next week we'll start digging in. You're going to love the book of James. It's going to turn whatever angst you may have felt. And I have all my life I've struggled with. I did not want to ever teach James. I wanted to happily retire. And just stay with the Apostle Paul and all that, you know, because, uh, and avoid all the stuff where Paul actually talks like James, hard. I wanted to avoid all that. But here we are, and I'm finding that I love it. Uh, what is the character of James? That's what we're going to look at. What is, what's going on with James? Why is Chuck saying it is utterly unique in all the New Testament? There's nothing like it. Uh, and why do we need it? Second question, what do we need the book of James for? I think that's going to be obvious. And finally, who is James really pointing us to? Even though he only mentions Jesus twice, the case can be made profoundly that Jesus is in every single verse. He's got Jesus. He has imbibed his half-brother to the point that everything that is coming out of James is re uh, stating, reminding, re-saying what Jesus said. And he's reminding people that may actually have heard Jesus in the flesh. If, in fact, the book is written as early as some scholars believe it is. These people would have been people that were thrown out of Jerusalem and were now living in other parts unknown. And James sends them this encyclical paranesis, a letter, that is really not a letter. It's a paranesis of pithy aphorisms, loosely connected, so that they would know how to live in the already not yet of this messianic age that we are living in today. So very, very wonderful. Who's he pointing us to? So first of all, let's look at this. What is the character of James? First of all, they're aphorisms, proverbs, exhortations, commands. They are restating and reframing much of what Jesus said. Not everything, not every word, 
But much of what Jesus said, James has absorbed this. Remember, he was there at first. He didn't believe in his brother. And then as time went on, he did believe in his brother. In fact, uh, the book of Acts, I think, says that James, Jesus appeared to James as he did to Peter. And James became a leader in the apostolic church in Jerusalem. Peter was out a long time before, and James hung in all the way till pretty much the end of the Jerusalem church. And so he was, in fact, the head, if you will, the head elder of the Jerusalem church in, uh, in Israel. So, James is restating these pithy sayings that Jesus often used. And you can find these wonderful charts. Happy to share them with you if you want. He's extremely blunt. He's not like the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul was using a, uh, an argument, rabbinic argumentation that was magnificent. He was tying themes together. Sometimes his sentences were so long that you forget what was at the front and you're already at the back and you're going, what's he talking about? And you've got to spend a lot of time with Paul, especially in books like Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians because he's tying these magnificent themes together and he's constantly pushing people to Jesus because they're... He's going into a polytheistic world, a pagan world, and he's saying, come to the one true God, and he's giving all of his... James isn't doing that. He's talking to the church, to people that are already unified with Christ. He's blunt. He's direct. He's penetrating in the most uncomfortable rabbinic way. The rabbis were not sweet and kind, and they were they were forceful in their teaching. You know, they were the they were like uh, the the nuns. If you went to a Catholic school, they had their rulers, and if you didn't answer right, they whack, whack you on the head. And if you don't believe that, just read some of Jesus would say, "You get behind me, Satan." He told his best apostle, "Get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about." He was very blunt. He told the Pharisees and scribes, you are children of the devil. And there's no way for you to be saved. How would you all like that if I came to church and said, you all are devils and you're not going to be saved? Amen. See there? Somebody believed. I mean, really, think about that. Jesus was not sweet about things. He was hardcore. And uh, that's the way the rabbis were. So James is just fitting right in with with this. uh, He's... uncomfortable, confrontational. There are diatribes in the book of James that will just, I mean, you know, where he rails against people. And it's painful sometimes to read James. You think, gosh, is he talking to me? Well, yes and no, but we'll we'll get into that later. Uh, It's structured, the way James is structured with it's loosely tied together is so that you will slow down and read them. For five years now, since I was first diagnosed with cancer, and I started, I thought, you know, I need wisdom. I'm going to be going through some tough stuff. So I started reading Proverbs five years ago when I was first diagnosed. And I, I, I read a chapter a day every day. So in a month, I finished Proverbs every month, every month, every month. And I've been doing this now for five years. And I tell you, folks, it has transformed my thinking. So when I started reading James, I'm going, my gosh, I'm reading the book of Proverbs. And you are. It's remarkable. But reading a chapter a day is too much. That's too much. So what I've done, and I can't find any program or app that will do this, so I'm going to have to do it manually, but I'm going to start, instead of reading the whole book of Proverbs in a month, I'm going to take one proverb, one, one little section, and read it each day. 
and just spend time thinking about it. This is how James designed his book. He wants you to slow way down. Not like the Apostle Paul where he's stringing out sentence after sentence with no periods, no commas, no nothing. And you're way down the line over here before he makes his point. James isn't doing that. He's just throwing these things out like, like rapid fire. And he's wanting you to catch them and take them and sit down and wrestle with them in light of your life, where you're living, how you're living, and the trials and troubles that you're facing. So it's very short, and he's very blunt. Look at verses 2 and, and 6. He says, trouble, he, 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 he leads with this. What a crazy way to open your letter. Troubles are an opportunity for great joy. You know, most of us would just close it right there and say, this guy is out of his ever-loving mind. Troubles? Great joy? Don't tell me that. Can't possibly be. No apology, no nothing, doesn't soft pedal. Troubles? Joy. Then he moves and he says, be sure you have faith in God. Don't you waver. Now, who doesn't waver? Everybody wavers. Don't you waver because people that have this divided loyalty know this, you will receive nothing from God. Yikes. You mean he's not going to hug me and tell me it's all going to be okay? No, you're going to get nothing. Zero. Big zero. Wow, hard. That's hard saying. He loves the poor, but he hates you rich people. And you know what? The poor are going to be exalted, but you rich people, oh my gosh, they're just... Don't, all of your, here's what he says to people that have stuff, lots of stuff, like us. Here's what's going to happen. Your goods are going to fade away. He's going to humble you. He's going to, your stuff's going to get scorched by the earth. It's going to wither. And the beauty and achievements that you have, have made so much of, they're going to die. Now, tell me something. Are you loving your pastor right now more than... Right? That, no? I mean, I never talk to you that way. Do I? No, of course not. He's hard. This is a guy who's hardcore. Well, it gets, it gets better. We don't have time this morning to get into all that. Why do we need the book? Well, there's two things I'm going to give you. There's more, but here's two that we're going to talk about, and I'll add some to this later. One is... It profoundly connects the New Testament to the wisdom uh, wisdom genre, if you will, of the Old Testament and the Apocrypha and the entire ancient Near East. They had a level of wisdom that a lot of us in the West do not have because of the Enlightenment. And we're just now, we just think, you know, one, two, three, four, very rational, everything's all squared away. But... The book of Proverbs is very artistic and it resonates with people. I don't know if you, do any of you love poetry? Do you love poetry? Oh, there's one or two. Okay, see? In a Reformed church, people don't like poetry. We want systematic theology. Amen? Amen. Systematic, give me systematics. Give me Burkhoff. That's what we love. But... The Bible is very poetic and the book of Proverbs very poetic and very artistic. It's meant to go down beneath the surface. Tim Keller says the Proverbs are like hard candy. Okay, you're to to take a proverb and put it in your mouth and let it slowly dissolve. You don't want to bite down on on a proverb. And James is doing the same thing. He's giving you hard candy. 
And he's saying, take this, put it in your mouth, this little piece, and just think about it and think about it. Let it work its way down into your soul so that you can assess your riches and you can assess your poverty and you, you can look at it from God's point of view and so it will not take you down when you suffer because you're going to suffer. Okay, why do we need it? We need that continuity with the old world, that Old Testament wisdom. And he brings it right into the New Testament. And look at verse 1. Right away he sets the tone, as many of the writers of the New Testament do, that we are living in the already not yet. I've told you about this a million times. You've got to plug this idea into your mind that when Jesus left, he said, I'm coming again. But in the meantime, what? Go into all the world and make disciples. Bring light and life to your world. In the journey, we tell our journey guys, where you live, work, and play. Everywhere you are, take the kingdom of God with you. Everywhere you go, take Jesus Christ there into that darkness. Wherever it is. So there's no sacred and secular necessarily in the kingdom of God. Everything is sacred. Your work... One, one commentator said if your work becomes a calling, if you can look at your work as a calling, you will quit despising your work. You may want to change your job. You may not like what you're doing. Fine. But you won't hate it and be miserable. Anybody can take their job, even if it's a lousy job, and say, no, God's called me to this for right now, and I'm going to love it and get into it and do my very best and do what the Apostle Paul said, as if you were working for the Lord. Now it's not just a job. Now it's a calling. And the Reformation gave us that back, the voca, the vocation idea, instead of separating and saying, well, clergy, like a pastor, he has a sacred calling, and all the rest of you, well, you're just working in menial secular jobs, and yeah, you're going to be miserable, but give us all your money while you're at it, while you're being miserable. No, the Reformation said all of your work is sacred. Your pleasures are sacred. Sin notwithstanding. If sin, no. But anything else, you should be enjoying and loving this world and everything in it. Loving it, as one of our pastors said, loving it back into life. The dead alive. Christians are to do that. And James is going hard at it, hard at it. It's just lovely, I'll tell you. We're living in the already. We're in dispersion. We're in the wilderness. This is not our home. Our home is coming. It's moving towards us like a tsunami. It's, it's, it happened the day of the resurrection. The earthquake hit and the, and the tide went back and it's coming now. It's closer right now than it was when I began the sermon. And after our congregational meeting, it's going to be closer yet and it's closer yet and it's coming and it's coming and it's coming. And while we know it's coming, we're sure it's coming. We know. We've heard the alarm bells. We've heard all the alarms that Jesus is coming again. And in the meantime, we're to bear down and bring light to our world. And boy, does our, does our world need light right now? Oh, man. It always has, but we're here now. And uh, we've got to do what's best for our, for our world. So why do we need it? Because we're living in the already, not yet, and we need the wisdom of that Old Testament. We need to be suffused in it. And so, he brings it into our lives, James does. Uh, And finally, who is he pointing to? You know, I think a lot of us think, and let me finish with this, that Christianity is all about 
a behavior modification. That that's all it is. It's about coming to church and, and hearing, here's how you should act and here's what you should do and here's how you should be. And James is all about that. It's going to be tough, but I'm going to keep us on track because I know who James is pointing to and I'm going to show you who he's pointing to. And he is not merely trying to get you to modify your behavior, although that is essential that we modify our behavior. What James is doing, just like, listen to me, please, lock this in. The book of Proverbs is not about behavior modification. The book of Proverbs is unique literature. It is not promises. So if you look at the book of Proverbs, oh, if I raise my child in the way he should go, then when he's old, he will not depart. If you take that as a promise, you are going to be sorely disappointed. But if you take it as it's meant, as an aphorism that puts a great deal of responsibility on you, yes, to raise your children, and at the same time, it warns the child, the young person, if you don't listen to your father and mother, here's the result, here's the consequence. So it's appealing to both sides to do what is right. But it's not a promise. It's an aphorism. It's a proverb. And if we look at James this way, it's going to just, it's going to just boing. The lights are going to go on and you're going to love this epistle of straw. It's about heart transformation. It's about why. Why would you as a Christian want to live differently in this world? Why would you want to have hope and joy and faith even during your trials? Why? Because in the cone of certainty, Jonathan reminded us in, in Sunday school this morning, in the cone of certainty, suffering and trials are up high in the cone of certainty because that's where we live. And suffering for the Christian is about God's glory, which is really high in the cone. And so we are going to suffer. There's going to be trials. But how do you get through it? Not by behavior modification. That won't do it. Those of you that have tried it, I've tried it. We sink, right? I mean, you can hold on for what? Maybe a day? Maybe an hour? Sometimes not even five minutes? Me, I give up before it even starts. I have learned just give up and complain the rest of the time. That really works well when you're suffering. You guys are sleepy today. All right. Very quickly. Here who's, listen to who he's pointing to. This is just lovely. He's pointing to a God of incredible benevolence, lavish lavish giving. Uh, look at 16 through 18 and verse, 20, uh, verse 2, cha- chapter 2, verse 1, which is not printed, but you can look if you have your Bible. Every gift of God is good and perfect and from above. They are from a place that you cannot reach, that you can't get to, that is inaccessible to you, unless what? Unless He gives it. It's there, it's lavish, it's generous, but you don't get it unless He gives it. We're talking about a God who loves to give. He's not stingy, He's not holding back, and He's not saying, here, here," you know, dangling it like this, like a carrot, say, jump. Well, you're not jumping high enough. Here, try a little harder. And then He lives, like my son Daniel, I try to get, when he was three years old, I'm trying to get him to jump off the diving board, I'm under the diving board in the deep end of the pool. Jump. And you know, no, you're going to back up. I won't back up. I'll catch you. Jump. No, I don't trust you. He, he would say to me, no way, Jose. 
That's what he would tell me. No way, Jose. I don't know where he learned it. But no way, Jose. I'm not jumping because you're going to back up. You're not going to catch me. So he jumped. And I caught him. Right? And oh, he's not lying like he normally does. <laughs> so he goes and gets out and he jumps. And about five, six times he jumps. And then on the seventh time, what did I do? Sure enough, man, I backed up. <laughs> so he's, the little kid, he's flailing away. He's drowning. And he's kind of, come on, come on, come on, come on. You see what God is, God is generous and lavish, good and perfect gifts, but you don't get them. He's not, he's not dangling it out over your head and saying, come on, jump a little higher, try a little harder. Nike theology, just do it, just do it, come on. No, he's lavish, he's pouring it out there. And he doesn't back up. He's a God of relationship, look who he says, the Father Father, he invokes Father. He's probably thinking of the Lord's Prayer that his brother taught him. Wow, is that something? Amazing. He's the God of lights. Look, what did light mean? In your whole Bible, what is light? Light is the, the driving force that moves away darkness. Darkness is nothing. Darkness cannot push out light. The tiniest light can dispel darkness. We know that. And so light means freedom. Light means Light means life, not death. Freedom, not slavery. It means not being in the the dark. He's the Father of light. He's not going to bring darkness into your life when you're suffering under a trial. Pray for wisdom and you will have light. He's the God of assurance and certainty. Look, no variation, no shadow of turning. You know, in in the ancient world, the gods were very capricious. They were like bad people. They were like bad children the gods of the ancient world. And they, could, they were moody, and they were filled with lust. They wanted to have sex with everything they could find. They wanted the people to, to, to be their slaves, and they would tell somebody a promise. They'd promise to do something, and then they'd do the opposite, and then they'd all get together up in, in Olympus, and they'd all laugh and chuckle and ha-ha-ha, you know. They were very capricious. None of them were like this God. None of them where there's no variation, no shadow. When he tells you he loves you, my friends, he loves you. you say, well, but I, you know, what if I do something bad? He loves you more. What if I do something really bad? He comes in closer. He didn't hold his nose and back up and say, oh my goodness, I, I can't look at that. How do we know that? Because he looked at the cross. He looked at his son. The worst thing anybody could have ever seen on this planet, he already saw it. And He loved you through that. Not in spite of it. It's even better than that. He sent His Son because He loved you. Unbelievable. There's an assurance and certainty that we can have. Not tying a knot on the end of your rope. No, 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 no. That's bumper sticker theology. No, there's no rope, no knot. He has bound you with cords of love. He's locked you down. You can't get away. And He will never give you up. Never. He's a God of power, purpose, new birth, truth, love, acceptance. Look at this phrase. It's too much time. I'm running out of time. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. There is so much in that one phrase we could spend weeks on it. The sovereignty of God, the election of God for His people, the love of God, the unconditional grace, Jesus plus nothing, all right there in that one sentence. He's the God of adoption. Look at the next phrase. That we should be a kind of 
first fruits. In other words, the very best. What, what were the first fruits? The best you have. And so God's not making you into something, yeah, you know, uh, those people over there, they're really, really great. Mother Teresa and Chuck and all those, they're terrific. And you know, you're just back here, you're like the third or fourth fruit. No, He's making us into first fruits. We're the choicest of His. He chose us, not because we're choice, but once He chooses us, now we're choice. Now we're really good. So I'm not good. Yes, you are. He's making you good. The God of adoption. And finally, the God of glory. Not just any glory, but look. The literal translation, I looked it up last night in in the Greek. I actually can read Greek sometimes. Especially if I cheat and get an English uh, transliteration underneath. That really works, you know, because I've been out of school a long time. When he says the God of glory, it's actually our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. He uses a definite article, the. Jesus Christ, the glory. Now look, folks, there's no glory but God's glory. So when he says Jesus Christ is the glory of God, he is saying the same thing John says, same thing Paul said, same thing everybody has said. Jesus Christ is the one he's pointing us to and he's reminding us that for us to get glory, for us to receive glory, he had to lose his glory. And so he's not disagreeing with anything Paul says. He's agreeing with Paul that Jesus clothed his glory with humanity so that he could go to a cross and suffer the shame and despise it and bring to you and I the glory of God that we lost in the garden. We lost it. And Jesus loses his so he can get it back for us. And he does. And James is pointing us to that. And if we keep that in the center of all these aphorisms and paranesis and all this other fun stuff, you're going to learn words that you can really dazzle your friends with. It's going to be great. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we do love you and thank you for your kindness and your mercy. And uh, we, we know that the apostle James, your brother, was not in any way Uh, speaking in a contradictory fashion, but instead he is just nailing the truth of who we are and what we're to do down into our hearts so that we can live as those who are trusting Jesus, actually doing what we're called to do. And when we fail, knowing how to run to him and turn to him and then start up again, obeying our Savior. Please help us, Father, as we come to this table today. We ask that you will feed us in our hearts by faith. In the name of your Son, amen.